I should say I survived last Sunday, and somehow God didn't let it get taped, videoed, or anything. So I know there's great rejoicing on my behalf, but uh, we're in the middle of a study looking at emotional health. And not from the standpoint of, we just need to be better humans, but in the sense that if we're going to grow in our discipleship, most of the times what actually stunts our ability to be like Jesus is our impaired emotional health. We don't know how to process our emotions. And in fact, I, I have on the, on the slide, uh, I did this the first week, all eight of the emotions, core emotions uh, that we are looking at over our time together. And again, there are more emotions, but we could just say in a sense, these are the core, like the three primary colors. You can mix all of these together and get a, a whole conglomeration of different emotions. But when you look at all those, we think almost all of them are like negative and bad, don't we? As opposed to thinking they're all gifts. They're all ways that we as humans probably this week felt. Like if you were to stop and <clears throat> take stock of your week, did you feel hurt this week by anyone? Did you feel lonely? Were you sad? Were you angry? Did you live in fear, shame, guilt? Were you glad? Like probably all of us live in all of those emotions almost every day if we're honest with ourselves. And since we don't know how to deal with them, how to process them, and allow the good news of Jesus, the gospel, to become a reality in our lives, we struggle becoming like Jesus. And this morning, I want to look at the, the emotion of anger. One of the ways we can reclaim who God has made us to be as his people is through the gift of anger. Yes, I said that. Anger is a gift. Anger can lead us to righteousness and justice. Now, we're going to see in a moment that anger is, a, is, a, is an emotion very near to my heart. Anger is probably the emotion I feel and experience the most. And ask my kids, and they will definitely tell you this. But in truth, anger is something way different than most of us think of it as. Anger might be the most important experience, most important emotion that we actually feel to become real spiritual beings who follow Jesus. Actually, anger leads us to authentic living. It gives us a yearning and a hunger for life. Anger reveals who we are and what we need and what we want. And yet most of us may have grown up with these statements. It's not good to be angry. Angry is harmful. Anger and godliness do not go together. Anger is a sin. You ever heard those things? But, if learned through the power of the Spirit, and the good news of Jesus comes to be pressed upon our hearts, the gift of anger can lead us to be disciples of Jesus who yearn for life. When we ignore it... It leads to great devastation in our relationship with God, others, and ourselves. Matthew chapter 21, I'm going to get to this passage in a few moments. But I think in Matthew chapter 21, we're going to start in verse 8. We see a very interesting story about Jesus. 
A very large crowd, verse 8 says, and I have this on the screen for you as well if you just want to follow along. A very large crowd in verse 8 spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road and the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? In verse 11, the crowds answered and said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So Jesus entered the temple courts, and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple when he'd healed them. And when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. Fathers, we seek to look at the life of Jesus and the story of him at the temple. We need the Spirit of God to come and show us how anger can actually be used positively as Jesus used it positively here. And so help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Any of you struggle with that story? Going up as a kid, Jesus just kind of walking into a church building. It would be like us just meeting right here, and Jesus just walking in and taking chairs and turning them over and telling us all to get out of here. Wouldn't that be a very strange phenomenon? Like, and, and if that person came in here and did that, we would actually say to that person, why are you, like, what's the matter? Why are you acting so angry? Like, if I just, I've never done this, if I just walked in my kid's room and just started overturning everything, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be like, hey, he's so happy. They'd be like, why is he so mad? Why is he so angry? And so what does this passage teach us about Jesus, about our humanity, about anger? Well, number one, <clears throat> it shows us, anger shows us the presence of passion. It exposes what we value and find important in our lives. It shows us what matters the most to us. You only have anger when you're moving towards the things that you care about. Nothing shows you more about what you value, what matters to you, than the things that you actually have passion for, you have anger over. I'm going to go to God, where God is calling me to go. This passion, this drive, despite the pain, I have this desire, this yearning, this passion to go somewhere. So in a sense... Here, you got to hear this whole statement, especially my kids. Only angry parents can raise healthy children. Okay? And why? <laughs> Amen? Amen. That's all we're taking away from the sermon today, right? <laughs> you got to hold on a few minutes. Parents who can say to their kids, this is my passion for you. I have desires for you. I don't want you doing that. You're my kid. And if you do that, that's going to destroy your life. It's going to destroy your relationships. And I don't want you to go there. 
And so we have an anger for our kids. We have this desire for them to do what God has called them to do, to put into their hearts what God has put into their hearts and to, and to bring that out of them for the sake of the kingdom of God. So words that we don't often associate with anger, that we should start associating with anger is like yearning and wishing and hungering and desiring. Like deep within us, God has given us these, these desires for things to be done. These desires for things to be accomplished. And that's the anger. And we're going to see that anger in Jesus. He had a yearning and a desire that brought him to the temple that made him start overturning all the tables and driving everybody out. There's anger there. Number two, not only does it reveal what we value and what is matter to us, but it illuminates and it like indicates the experience of many other feelings, many other emotions. Anger tells us something is wrong. It tells us <clears throat> we need something. Anger is the check engine light in your life. Okay? Anyone have a check engine light on? I do. Mine's been on for three years. <clears throat> okay? And I don't know if you've ever seen Big Bang Theory, but there's a couple scenes that are really famous for um, Penny always telling Sheldon, or Sheldon always telling Penny, your check engine light's on. She's like, oh, it keeps going. One day it's going to just die, right? Well, I've had it checked out. It, it's, it's okay. It'll be fine. But it's like it, when we experience anger, it's like this warning underneath our hood in our hearts that something is not right. It is telling us to, to look and to examine what is going on. Are we, are we afraid of things? Are we hurt? Are we lonely? Are we sad? It, it indicates that we need to take responsibility for these other feelings. So anger can help us deal with losses. It can help us deal with rejection, our wounds. It can warn us that things are going on. And it can clarify it can, it can not only warn us what's going on, but when we begin to analyze and dig deeper why we're angry, it can help clarify what is actually happening. Most of us sometimes don't want to show up with our anger. Anger sometimes leads us to run away from things, and we're going to see that in a few minutes. But anger is that thing underneath the hood that is telling us something is wrong, and we have the ability to go clarify it. And then, if we use anger rightly and see it as a gift, it can create great desire. So it can tell you what's wrong, it can tell you what you need, and it can help you understand what your desires are. I don't know about you, but COVID has put a check engine light on me. Like underneath the hood, something is going on. Why am I so angry? Why have such passion about all of the things that are going on with COVID, right? Okay, and this is not our left or right, Republican or non-Republican, mask wearing or non-mask wearing issue, okay? I, but I'm saying, do you feel that in you? And why do I have such a passion? Why do I get so worked up over that? I have to check myself, and I can begin to see what is wrong and clarify more and more what is going on in my heart and ask God to give me right desires. 
So when we understand anger as a gift that can lead us to understand what's going on in all the other areas of our life, it can be a huge benefit. And I think this example of Jesus here in the temple is really helpful. This passage, as I've mentioned in the beginning, is a hard one for sure. You know, we know, if you grew up in the church, we know that Jesus lived in every way like we did, yet without what? Sin. So we know that in one sense, when he went into this temple, it wasn't sin. But, you know, if any of us walked into this room and just started turning tables, we'd all be like, you're a sinner. So how did Jesus, in this particular passage, walk in and live out his anger appropriately? Well, notice a couple things about this passage. It says in verse 11, the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the what? The prophet. So there's this statement that is pretty familiar in Christian theology that Jesus is a prophet, priest, and king. You ever heard that line before? And we're pretty good at understanding Jesus' kingship. He's reigning over all things. We understand Jesus' priesthood very well. He died in our place. He, he mediates between God and man for us. Does that make sense? Like he's our priest and we deal with that. But when we say Jesus is a prophet, what do we mean by that? I don't think we understand the, the reality that Jesus was a prophet. Jesus is acting as a prophet. In fact, one of the most missed aspects of Jesus in this particular passage is his identity as a prophet, as Matthew tells us. See, back in the Old Testament, Moses said this in Deuteronomy chapter 18, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, and you must listen to him. This is a prediction that one day a prophet is coming to whom Israel better give allegiance to. <clears throat> And as you follow the Old Testament, there's all of these prophets that go on between Moses and the last prophet in the scriptures in the Old Testament form is John the Baptist. And all the way along the line, Jesus is acting like these prophets. Like Ezekiel, Jesus is predicting that God's presence, the Shekinah glory, is going to abandon the temple and the temple is going to be left unprotected. Like Jeremiah, Jesus is constantly running the risk of being called a traitor to Israel's national security while continually claiming that he is Yahweh's God's spokesman. Like Jonah, he's predicting imminent judgments. Like Amos, he's predicting a day of darkness and not light. Like Elijah, and you can see all the ways that Jesus is acting like a prophet. But prophets not only demonstrated who they were in their speech. But they did very strange actions. Anyone know any strange things that prophets did in the Old Testament? Do you know Ezekiel laid on the side for 390 days? Now, if that was straight, we're not sure. If it was like for eight hours a day, we're not sure. But for 390 days, he laid on his left side. And then for 40 days, he laid on his right side. Why would he do that? Why would a prophet eat a book? Why would a prophet actually sit in cow manure? Like when you read the Old Testament prophets, it wasn't just their speaking and their judgment upon Israel that they did, but they actually demonstrated and began to show what God was going to do by their actions. 
So when Jesus walks into the temple, he's walking in as a prophet, and he's doing his prophetic action, just like all the Old Testament prophets did in their actions. Jesus is coming in now in his actions, demonstrating something. Ezekiel was demonstrating that for 390 days, God is going to punish the nation of Israel. And now, in Jesus' action of cleansing the temple, Jesus is making a point. What is that point that Jesus is making? Jesus, simply put, is this, calling out judgments on the temple and its system. See, the temple in Jesus' day was far more holy than the church building. Okay? I don't know how you understood the church building growing up, but you always had to wear a Sunday best because when you came to see Jesus, you had to have your best on, right? There's something special about these four walls that takes place here that can't happen anywhere else. Well, take that times a million. And that's what the Jews thought of the temple. Like, God is never going to punish us. As long as we keep our temple, as long as we keep our sacrificial system, God is never going to leave us, right? That's what they thought. And so it became like this talisman, this good luck arm. And as long as they had the temple, God would be with them. Now, in a, in, back to Matthew chapter 21, what does Jesus say in verse 13? My house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. Guess where Jesus picks up these passages from? Isaiah chapter 56. The prophet Isaiah says this, I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifice will be accepted in my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Back in Isaiah, the prophet is predicting that one day the temple is going to be the place where the prayer for all the people of God is going to actually come. Then in Jeremiah chapter 7, Jesus, sorry, not Jesus, Jeremiah says, Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and perjury and burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known and then come to stand before me in my house, which bears my name, and say, We are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? So, even in the Old Testament, there's this understanding the house of God, the temple, is going to be where all the nations are going to come to gather to pray and to fellowship with God. And yet in Jeremiah, the prophet is indicating, how dare you think that you can go worship all these other gods, do whatever you want, then come here and just think you're going to be safe. You've made my house a den of robbers. Now, most of us, maybe have thought that this is like Jesus is against the commercialization of the temple. What do I mean by that? These people are just using the temple for a financial gain. Does that make sense? They're selling things and, you know, for the poor people, I've heard this many times, like they would, you know, charge more for the poor people so they'd have to like get their animals and before they could go sacrifice, they were, you know, taking money from these people and they were using the temple more for their own benefits. But in verse 13, when it says a den of robbers, sorry, yeah, verse 13, the den of robbers, <clears throat> I think is better understood not as robbing and, and commercializing, but I think the better way is a understanding as an insurrectionist or as a bandit. 
Uh, Jesus was traded for Barabbas, right? He was this insurrectionist, this bandit. They were people in the temple who were seeking to incite violence against Rome. The temple had become the point of national hope and liberation for Israel against the Roman Empire. And so these den of robbers were there using the house of God as a place of safety, and yet they were doing everything outside the temple that was acting contrary to God and what God wanted. That's what it means to be a den of robbers. So Jesus steps on the scene here, and he walks in, he begins to turn over the tables. Why? Because he's a prophet, inciting judgment on the nation and saying, I need to destroy this temple, because John tells us in three days, what's he going to do? He's going to rebuild it in three days. What is Jesus actually claiming? Jesus is claiming, you're putting all of your hope in this temple to be right with God, and where should you be putting all of your hope? In me, not me, but Jesus, right? So Jesus is angry at his people for rejecting God and rejecting him. Jesus' anger is is revealed in his passion, his desire for his people to trust Yahweh. And in order for that to happen, he had to do a very dramatic, prophetic act of turning over all the tables so that the nation would come to see that they can't put their trust in the temple. But you need to put your trust in Jesus. And this is Jesus' gift of anger. It was a passion you know that God is angry for you? Prepositions are really important, aren't they? He's not angry at you. He is angry for you. He is passionate for you. God wants to be with you. And Jesus wants to overturn all the tables in your life to come to him and find life. And when you come to Jesus, he allows you then to become passionate about the things that he's passionate about. What are you angry for? My, my counselor a few months ago, before I was learning all this stuff, he just said, Scott, I'm angry for you. I went, what? Why are you angry for me? And when I began to realize as he was unpacking this more and more for me, he was just like, I have this deep desire to see God bring healing in your life. And I was like, oh, that makes a lot more sense. What are you angry about? What, what do you have a passion about? Do you have a passion, as we've talked about, to see the, the increase in abortion of babies being murdered in our city? Does it make you angry? Do you have a passion to hear about people who don't have basic necessities of life? What are you angry about? See, we don't blame parents for feeling angry when their child has been abused or mistreated. We don't condemn each other for being angry about the injustices in the world. See, and I have, this is like, you may not always see this come out I'm not very expressive in it. But I have deep, like if I care about something, I care about it. Like if I care, like I used to tell my soccer kids who I coach all the time, if I make fun of you, that means I like you. If I don't make fun of you, be scared. I'm angry at you. I don't like you. Like, and I have a deep passion 
to know God's word. I have a deep passion to see my kids live and grow up to be who God has made them to be. And I have a deep passion for Redemption Church to become a family of servant missionaries. I have this deep desire, this anger for my kids. But there's something that Jesus does not do that I all often do, all too often do. I know this is a play on words, but for the sake of words, let's just make this distinction. There's a difference between all of the anger I've been talking about that we see in Jesus. There's a difference between that and the word I'm going to use as rage. Rage is what we do at others, what we do at God, when underneath the hood of our hearts the warning light comes on and we become afraid and we become afraid that we don't want to become vulnerable or dependent or needy or show our weakness, and so we act out in fits of rage. Rage says, I'm helpless. I'm afraid, and I'm unwilling to let you know that I feel fear, so I'm taking control of that situation right now. And if you don't stop it right now, I'm going to harm you. Literally, figuratively, verbally, physically, I will do whatever it takes to not experience pain. Rage is this negative movement. It's the impaired emotion of anger that moves us away from relationship, away from God, and into a place of isolation and being alone, and, and it brings destruction. In your relationships, when you get angry, when you rage... It's a demonstration that underneath the hood, things are not right. Now, some of us rage very differently, by the way. When I say the word rage, you just think, ah, right? Like coming out and screaming at kids or your spouse or your coworker. But maybe the worst type of rage is not the outright, but it's the silence. Some of you rage with a silent treatment. Any of you spouses like the silent treatment? Or how about the kindness treatment? I know you've been really bad to me and mean to me, but I'm just going to be here. I'm just here to kind, to love you. What do you need? See, rage is not always the outright anger. It's not the physical expression of words and, and being angry at your kids and being raging at your kids, but most of the time it's silent. And inside you're raging. I am a silent rager. I can, I can, you know, go from zero to ten with my kids really quickly. But most of the time, I stay right at a zero and keep everything inside. And inside, I'm just raging. But notice this, is that when we don't see the gift of anger as a gift to lead us to passion and desire, but we begin to go this way and move negatively in our impairment of emotion of anger, it also leads to depression. There's another negative way we deal with this rage, this anger, and it's depressing the life out of us. See, anger is moving us into passion for something, and when, when that doesn't get fulfilled and we don't like what's happening in our life, oftentimes we begin to do the opposite and begin to depress. We close off our desires. 
our desire to get up, to eat, to take a bath, to go for a walk, to do the things that God has called us to do is often closed off in our lives. See, depression is you don't want to feel passion. You want to actually come over here and not feel the pain. And when you live over here in the depression and in the silent treatment and you're living with someone, you're asking them to do what? Feel your pain for you. What do I mean by that? Think of it this way. Okay? You're raging inside. And you and your kids or you and your wife, you and your spouse are out for dinner. And inside you're quiet. You're just raging. And what does your spouse want to do? Don't they want to make you feel better? Like you're supposed to be out having fun and you're just sitting there like, hmm. And the other person just wants to make you happy, right? So you don't want to feel the pain of what's happening in your life. And so you're going to depress, but then the person who's actually on the other side is going to feel all your pain. And you won't feel it, so they're going to feel it for you, and they're going to try to make you feel better. It's really selfish, isn't it? Making other people feel the pain that you won't experience yourself. And so we begin to live these depressed, closed-off lives. We say things like, what's the use? Is it going to matter? Does it really even matter or change if I do this? In a movie from 1862 called The Wonderful Life, I don't know when. It's in black and white. It had to be that old. George Bailey stood on the bridge on Christmas Eve in a world that had become dark for him. He was angry at his dreams. He was hopeless about his passion for his life, for his others, and his well-being. And he was despised and he was depressed. And so what does he do? He says, I wish I'd never even been born. And so in Clarence, you probably know this story, George's guardian angel jumps into the water. George instantly responds from his true heart, who he truly is. And what does he do? Throws himself into the water, exactly, to save another human being. He couldn't stop being himself. And so courageous and full of heart and passion. We're going to say it this way. God began to move in him to make him be who he made, who was made to be. And the rest of the movie is about George's struggle to accept his passion, his desire, his hopes, his dreams. And the return of his desire, the return of his anger, the return of his passion for his life reignites the dedication and devotion to what he believes and eventually takes him home. And he's willing to face all the consequences. And he learns to accept love and give love. And so anger in George Bailey when he began to stop feeling depressed, when actually feel his anger moved him into a life of passion. So let's allow God to use our anger for good. To move us into passion for what he is passionate about. Maybe this makes more sense of Ephesians 4, where Paul says, be angry and don't sin. Maybe we need to see what Paul was passionate about, what Jesus has desires for. What does Paul say in Philippians chapter 3? My yearning, my desire, my anger is that I may know who? Christ. 
Like these are the yearnings and the desires that actually breed life into us as when we seek to know Jesus. Or as we have on the screen in Colossians chapter 3, since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Why? Because you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Let's just stop for a second. What is Paul saying to the church at Colossae? Seek what things? The heavenly things. And seek them where? In Colossae. Okay, what I'm trying to help us see is like, we don't just like think of like heavenly things and just pursue those things. What he's actually saying is think of all the things that belong to heaven and live them right here. Have anger about the things God is angry about. Have desires and passions of heaven and allow them to actually permeate the way we live right here. So we don't become people who are so heavenly minded or no earthly good. I just made a stupid old pastor quote. I'm sorry. But I like... We don't want to just separate heaven and earth and say, well, I just live for that world. No, God says you live for this world by looking at that world and bringing that world down right here. Because when Christ, who is your life, I love that phrase, what is your life? I know James says it's a vapor and it's here and it's gone, but while it is here, your life is Christ. And the Christ life is one of anger, of yearning and desire. When he appears, we will appear with him in glory. So we allow God to use our anger, our passion for good, when we seek Jesus together. And when we seek him, we know the heavenly things, we're going to live them out here. So don't allow depression and rage and isolation to rob you of true life that's found in Jesus. So God, help us to be like Jesus who can walk into a temple and be filled with passion for people to know you. And give us right yearnings and right desires and right passions to know Jesus, to know you as the one who gives us life that is truly life.